we really kicked off the the beginnings of the Catholic uh, priests that were struggling with the practices that were coming out of the Roman seat. And so at this point, many folk are beginning to question whether or not everything is as it seems to be. We talked about the fact that back in the uh, latter, latter portion of the 13th, the earliest 1408 I listed there was John Wycliffe's English version was, uh, was published. And this progression of more people being exposed and more people riding on what their understanding of things are continue to progress. We stopped off in indulgences for a moment with the fact that that was the, the touchstone that really ignited things. We were talking about how there were city-states. Switzerland as a country was a unique area that was primarily French-speaking that was becoming, uh, at that time they hadn't been called Protestants yet, but they were becoming disenchanted with some of the practices of the, of the Roman uh, church. And so Zwingli was one of the first people to really start putting forward ideas about things not being quite the way that they're being portrayed, and at the same time we have the German groups even united into a, a, a military-type group that later will be battling the, the church itself and France. And so Luther is obviously in that group. We mentioned uh, the four different types of considerations for the Lord's Supper, and we had the uh, supersubstantiation that John pulled forward as a good alternative to the spiritual presence that was Calvin's uh, title for it. Supra. Supra. Su- one's a Toyota, one's a... <laughs> good plan. And so, all those things were, were going on. Were there any thoughts that bubbled up since last week or that, that we wanted to readdress? from last time that I know we talked about the presence of Christ as being one of the, the chief concerns with the uh, the presentation of transubstantiation. Now you got me where I'm not going to be able to say any of them. <laughs> the Catholic position versus the, uh, <laughs> the Swiss position. Uh, and so... Um, we had, we had a lot of other interesting things occurring with the Anabaptist movement. Conrad Grable and later uh, Minno Simon, Simons rather, would be putting forward a, an, an entirely uh, more separate vision of how things occurred, where they were essentially, if it was not prescribed in Scripture, then we were no longer required to do it. And so, in their minds, they came up with a memorial form of the Lord's Supper. Um, so did the Anabaptists exist before the Baptist? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought they were a reaction too. No, actually, if you and what's interesting to me was uh, one of the things that was very big in Switzerland was the idea that the church and the the government of the city are the were very in lockstep as well, and that there was to be no one outside of a certain group having church services. So they had a city city religion, and you were going to be that religion. Well, 
part of the trouble that Conrad Grable and the Anabaptists got into was that they were meeting in homes and, and starting a movement, and ultimately they baptized some folks outside of the church proper in their minds, in, in, in Zwingli's minds, and that led to one of the first uh, real rifts that ultimately led to a, a, a fellow being uh, drowned and killed over this. So whereas we think of, uh, of, of the, the martyrdom of the saints under the Roman Empire, it was actually some uh, pretty, pretty rough martyrdom of saints under our, even these own. John Huss, if you recall, was burned at the stake. We have uh, Tyndale, who we'll be hearing, I guess, a little bit about coming up as well. Many Protestant people were ultimately uh, usually drowned or occasionally burned for their beliefs. And these are... Uh, no, just a quick question. <clears throat> what we consider Baptists today, what, I think primarily came out of the English Baptists versus the old Anabaptists going back to you know, the 1500s. I, I would I would definitely say yes, and we're going to find that whenever we get into the Great Awakening period, how the Baptist movement kind of formed. But this particular group is one of the first groups that came up with the idea of an adult believer's baptism. And the, differ, the differences primarily were one of regeneration being a key component of that baptism, and that you would need to potentially be baptized again if you had fallen away and returned. And so in their minds, it was a, a keep at it until the job gets done type mentality rather than a once and done. And so one of the unique things is we continue to, as, as our church, accept a valid baptism as being a Trinitarian baptism, whereas for them it was, again, a you've been away for a while and you are repenting of what while you're away and we're going to reaccept you back into the Lord's church. And so it was a... So they wouldn't just rebaptize them because they had been baptized as infants, they would rebaptize them even repeatedly throughout their life. Because they need Yeah, if they had left, they, they definitely were doing it the first time as adults because they were saying that infant baptism was not a believer's baptism and so they were definitely doing it as an adult but it was one of those things, as you mentioned, if you left for a period of time and it really became almost that the believer or the person who was the uh, pastor at the time's belief that you were not, you know, it, was, it became a, an egregious abuse of the idea that this was a cleansing, <clears throat> of, of effectual event. And so... Um, Aren't there churches out there today that still do that? Yeah, that's still, uh, if you look at the movements that are uh, alive and well today, that's still a thing. Um, if you focus on the cleansing aspect, then yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You'd need it more than once. <laughs> yeah, you would say then that, that the old day of the Baptist, I guess, holds to the idea of what Roman Catholicism and Arminium holds to is this idea of provenient grace. Mm -hmm. That, you know, there's the Holy Spirit's out there and He's really trying to get you and. You, know, you either accept or you don't, but you always fall away and all that sort of stuff? I would say yes in the fact that the Previan grace was a part of it, but at the same time, if you remember Constantine, the emperor, pushed back his baptism until almost his death because he was concerned that it wouldn't 
do enough that he had bad stuff left to do and he wanted to make sure that he was able to get the full cleansing effect of baptism. And so there was still a large uh, regenerative aspect that was clinging to minds and that was one of the reasons why right, right now, even today, we still have the in the Roman Catholic Church a very early need for a child to be baptized because it is effectual in their minds of, of cleansing that, that Adamic a sin from that child at that moment, but in the case of the Anabaptists, they were their leader Grable himself actually, unfortunately, never really completed university. He went a couple of times to different universities, and he was not as uh, learned as the traditional Catholic reformer of the time. He was heavily influenced by Erasmus and his uh, Greek New Testament that he released, and so. He, this is almost like kind of the early births of the New Testament movement because he was able to have access to the New Testament in his, in his language and in a manner where he could study. So his exposure to Erasmus, in, they were not coffee buddies, but they were contemporaries in the same area and city that basically did communicate, and it, it rubbed off. And it wasn't until Zwingli came down on the Baptists for baptism and their position on Lord's Supper that they've parted ways and the Anabaptists kind of left on their own. They actually, at one point, captured the city of Munster and set up their own city-state and for a period of time until the Catholic Church forces retook the city. Uh, they were, they thought, the, a new Jerusalem again. So if you look at a lot of the unusual thought processes we have today, as far as America being in the new, the new Israel, and as far as those type of thoughts were not new. They've been going on by humans since, since we came up with the idea. And so the, uh, the other thing that really changed was uh, the uh, Ulrich Zwingli was a a chaplain in the, the Catholic uh, forces. And they had a particularly bad, devastating battle against the French. And he really saw a large number of Swiss people die that in his mind was for almost nothing. And so he became a, a, a person fighting to stop the practice of Switzerland exporting uh, mercenaries. In my mind, Switzerland is this peaceful place that they're always neutral. But that was because in the original time frame, they were a hard gun that was willing to basically send forces to whichever side was willing to pay somewhat. And so it's, it's interesting, though, that they, they, in this Reformation time period, stopped a lot of that. They did move away from that practice. And, and uh, you have people like Calvin and, and or Bullinger who followed Zwingli, who started really trying to reform them into this modern church state that we, we see in, the, in Calvin's writings. Uh, the other interesting thing about Zwingli was he died in a battle as a chaplain. And so as, uh, as he dies, this, a, a new younger fellow named uh, Heinrich Bollinger at 27 had been appointed as the uh, leader of a, a particular uh, 
church there in Zurich, he was elevated, and he takes on Zwingli's role and carries it forward. And he was a very prolific writer. In fact, what's unusual about him is that if he had been quoted more by other people, he probably would be huge on our radar. But of his some 12,000 letters that he sent throughout Europe, there's just not that many people that, that he was quoted by in our, in our Reformation-type writings. And uh, the number of sermons, he has what they call the decades, which were 50 sermons of a very, very extended period of time. It's like the full theological treatise, if you were looking for a, a series. The, the guy was just, it's amazing whenever I looked, I'm like going, surely not. How, how could I have never read any of his stuff? But again, the challenge was, is he was really kind of behind the scenes working with the German groups, keeping people on the same page, trying not to let this uh, peace that had happened between Switzerland and the German city-states fall apart. And uh, he was the one, he's also, if you've, uh, the Second Helvetic Confession is one of the most uh, widely distributed confessions from that time. He's the writer of that. And so it was, uh, he and Calvin were the people that wrote the, the kind of, this is where we're going to stand on the Lord's Supper, that put peace between the Lutherans and themselves. And so, um, so that, was, that was, again, a very uh, interesting to me to, to think of the fact that there was so much going on in Switzerland, which was a very small place geographically, but very oversized in their influence because he was writing to King Henry VIII who at that time was trying to get his newly, you know, we've got our own Church of England here going and so a lot of writings were passing back and forth between the two. So basically you look at this way the German Reformation was a Lutheran distinctively Lutheran in their doctrine Reformation versus in the Swiss Reformation it was more Reformed what we think of as Reformed Covenantal. Mm-hmm. So that would, would, would that Helvetic Confession be kind of a consensus document that was kind of helping bridge that yes unity between the Lutherans and the. It was an attempt the to get them all in the same boat, and if you look at the fact that a lot of our uh, federal theology that we have came out of uh, Bullinger, he was one of the one of the major proponents of the Adamic uh, sin transference, and so. He has writings on that that I was unaware of until I was studying this. And so you just kind of wonder, where did we get all this stuff? And it is from the Bible. Ultimately, everything we see in our confession is biblical. It's just that there are learned men that truly had the uh, luxury of being asked to sit down and write concisely about what these things meant, especially for people that weren't, at the time, in possession of a Bible. So catechesis was the chief tool of the, of, the, uh, of the Reformation to help people that didn't have copies of the Bible learn what they believed. Remind me again, I think you already said, what's the literacy rate? <clears throat> I honestly don't recall the literacy rate. I just know that the number of Bibles themselves were very, very few. Uh, just previously in the, in the time frame of uh, 1456, we just have our first Gutenberg Bible. And all of the Gutenberg Bibles were hand, uh, 
everything but the first letter of the paragraph was printed, but then that first letter of the paragraph was hand-lettered. And so there was only 180 of those printed. But uh, <coughs> it, it, does, it does get better. And also you gotta remember until, you know, Luther, all the Bibles were in Latin. Yeah. So if you didn't speak Latin, or didn't read Latin, you were pretty much out of luck. Yeah, in fact, a lot of the masses were still held in Latin. So it's even worse, you're going to this service and I would be speaking a language you didn't speak and you're just hoping that the, the Lord's gracious because, I mean, it, it, I would stop in portions and explain what I was saying, so to speak, but not nearly like we do today. I mean, today there's, we have the, the, the lovely option of saying this particular word means this in Greek and we get to know something about it, whereas in that time it was, again, vastly inverted. So, I can uh, give you a little picture in terms of the uh, question of how the, the literacy rate back in 2017 we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation there was a book that came out maybe a year or two before that called Brand Luther and it goes into great detail I work in the printing industry and it goes into great detail in terms of how the, the books were printed and how they dealt with getting the message out one of the great images they have in your mind is the fact that people who could afford them, yeah, it was a lot less expensive to produce these. They would produce little small like booklets. We would consider it a booklet. And just put, you know, tracts or sermons or whatnot and print those in these little short publications. And the, the richer folks who had enough money to purchase one of these booklets would literally gather a crowd of people who couldn't read, and they would read it to them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how the message spread on, a, on the popular level among even the illiterate. <coughs> the rich guy in our neighborhood bought one and he read it to us. You know? And if you recall, that's primarily how the original New Testament writings were. They were a letter that was written to a church, and that church would read the letter to the people of the church. And then they would copy that letter, and it would move to the, another group. And so I, I personally do think that the, uh, the reading of the word is the best transference of the information versus the idea of uh, a lot of the how to get better preaching. I guess that's why we have expo expositional preaching. Another portion at this particular time was uh, William Tyndale. And Tyndale was an Englishman that basically wanted to have an English version of the Bible for people in England. We had, uh, you know, John Wycliffe's efforts had been accomplished, but Tyndale was looking to extend that and basically get a, a new version that the people could read. And he went to the, uh, the Church of England and was denied this effort. And so he leaves and goes to the continent and essentially works with people in the, uh, in the French... Uh, Oh, that, well, I guess it's really Belgium and that area itself, and works for a number of years. He has an a actual warrant placed on him by the church telling him to come home and stop what you're doing and eludes capture for like 13 years. And it's ultimately a, a fellow that goes over there and asks around enough until he can find him that eventually secures him and convinces him that you can come home. He does come home 
and unfortunately is arrested and ultimately is uh, is condemned. And so, but from him, we did get a furtherance and a completed English translation that was widely available. And by that time, printing had become capable enough that we were, as John describes it, getting actual copies of things in a, in a format that the people could get. And so um, that... That proliferation of an English side and the uh, German side would later end up also with a French version that we see in France because of the uh, Huguenots and the Calvin influence. So, so we, uh, if we were looking at our little handout, we, we had the Anabaptist movements, and the, the differences were not just in the fact that it was adult baptism or regenerative baptism from the Anabaptists, but largely at this time we do have the idea of infant baptism being put forward as a replacement or as a similar to circumcision, which we ourselves hold to. And I found that interesting that that was introduced that far back at the Covenantal theology, I thought Michael Horton had come up with it. <laughs> but uh, apparently he was not the first guy. And so uh, it was interesting, again, to me to see that those writings from Bullinger and from Calvin basically, in some sense, siding somewhat with the, the Catholic tradition of the timing of the baptism, but completely at, at odds in, as far as what some of the... Uh, efficacy of why you were doing it so through our lines where we're connecting through Calvin it's it's also interesting to me that later on he would have essentially an argument with Arminius post uh, his death you know we we have the idea of of election being um in an Arminian fashion, I, I'm using the guy's name, which is probably the wrong way, but but it's just interesting to me that the chief proponent that was cited against him was Calvin, that had been had been deceased for over 60 years. So, um, in this particular case, the the remonstrants were coming forward saying, "We we are thinking that we need to continue to reform further. We haven't gone far enough on some of these elements." And this is a good example of whenever it was essentially um, halted and the church itself, this newly Protestant movement, essentially self-regulated and said, no, wait, where you're going is, is not correct. And so um, at that time, I just, uh, I found that particularly interesting. And part of that argument came out of the the actual factor that the Luther had come up with our will or his uh, bondage of the will book that he had written and it was uh, him arguing with Erasmus over what was the, the actions of our will. Where was our responsibility? Where was our capability? And for the large part, uh, Erasmus was, he was right there on board with the early reformers saying we have some problems but at the same time, he, he pulled back and said, no, wait, I think we, we just need to tweak some things. And later, his writings would even be uh, put on the do not read list 
from the Catholic Church because of his positions being somewhat murky in there against what they were coming from. So, more in favor of merely a moral reformation of the church. Truly. And Luther's problem was he was wanting to re- reform the doctrine. Yeah, one, one the morals. That's a very that's a very good way of starting down that road. Yeah, we have a we have a, a fellow that believes we can save the church proper by just changing the interaction of the clergy because again, at this particular time it was not uncommon at all for me as a fairly wealthy person to finish my university, become a priest, and literally buy my church I want to preach at. And so you have this weird melding of the political side ambitions of the, of the, of the continent with the church side. And I think that we've never recovered from that. If you look at the, uh, even back to Constantine, as soon as we started interspersing political ambition with church uh, actions, we started having some challenges. And Luther and his reforms in trying to, it wasn't that he by any means didn't want the state to be involved because Luther actually sided with the state in the peasants' revolt. Um, That's another horrible story whenever you look at the fact that just after we start to have all this uh, upheaval over the 95 Theses, we have peasants literally saying, wait, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be under this feudal lord system. We should all be equals. We should all be part of uh, the, the, the same group of getters as those people are. And literally hundreds of thousands of them across Europe stood up in revolt. And for a large part, the, uh, whether it was the Catholic forces or the Lutheran forces that were, only I'm calling them Lutheran because of the fact that that would be the, the system of uh, church doctrine they were believing, not that Luther was in charge. They put them down in large, large numbers. And Luther wrote against the peasant uprising, uprising saying, it's not right for you to rebel in this manner. And so that was a big disappointment and led to some of the lower classes to have a little bit more uh, separation from the church in that, in that time. So, any other thoughts on, on that particular? So is the U.S. the first group to really say, hey, let's separate the church and state? Well, and, and what's weird about that is we really here don't even necessarily... I don't believe our founding fathers had the intent in the same manner that we do today espouse it for separation. But they really did. It was one of the first places where they said, let's not have the state impose a religion on the people. Because that's kind of how we fortunately got the Heidelberg Catechism, was Frederick the Wise essentially said, I really do like what I'm hearing out of this man Luther. Could you guys write me something for my folk to be able to espouse and we could catechize with. And uh, we, we actually do have the, the, two, uh, the two fellows uh, whose names are escaping me at the moment. Uh, Olivanius and uh, Ursinus. So uh, those two fellows were the ones that, that wrote that originally. And so we, we basically had 
Frederick the Wise saying, if you're part of my uh, political area, my kingdom, you are Lutheran. And so that, if you recall, was also Charles V of France, who was a guy that was at Luther's uh, trial. He would later say, you have to choose a side. If you remember from last week, we talked about that. You're either Lutheran or you're Catholic which left all the people in Switzerland kind of out in the cold because they're like, well, we're not quite either. We're a little bit, little bit country and a little bit rock and roll on that. <laughs> and so, yeah. I'm thinking about what Sean's point, and others can probably correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think in the United States one of the issues was different <clears throat> states, different colonies wanted to have different dominant religions. So the federal government wasn't going to establish a religion, but different states early on would still try to do that. So yeah. that compromise to try to get all 13 colonies to ratify the Constitution. And I was going to say, you're probably 100% right. I think that what we'll see whenever we're looking at the formation of the country was that different uh, groups came and didn't want to form their own uh, environments to live. And so you did have a widely disparate type of background, whether it was Protestants or or the Quakers, early Baptists, all those folks had their little uh, settlements. But uh, you're in, again, federally, that was the main, main contention was, we're not going to side with a specific one. And today we have the whole, well, you can't even have a cross in a public park. But, but uh, I, I do think we were uniquely wise by saying that that should be capable. Yeah. But it is important to realize that something very different happened in the United States and in the different uh, denominational affiliations of the co different colonies is important. But on the other hand, in Europe, it was impossible to imagine that you could have a unified culture or a unified state unless you had a unified religion as well. And in the United States, there started to be a, sort of a challenge to that, at least at some level, and you know, one of the results of that is that you know, the Westminster Confession has changed very little since 1647, but one of the rare significant changes was that the American Presbyterian churches altered the sections related to the duties of the monarch because there was a significantly different view here, and the Presbyterian churches decided that they were going to adopt that. And uh, I think it would be a completely different coffee time discussion, but sometimes, sadly, I almost do think it would be better for us to have more um, culpability, culpability between the church and the effective leadership that was around because of the church uh, doctrines. If you look at the Nordic countries, they all had a city or a, a, a countrywide choice, whether it was Protestant or, or Catholic. And but those choices changed every time the leadership changed, it sounds like. Well, to some degree. And uh, the worst example of that would be England, where you literally, in the course of a two or three generations, flip-flop back and forth. But that same upheaval was used by the Lord to push people again outward. Whenever you look at why did we have people coming to America? Well, part of what we would see if we continued down the timeline was you know, we, we had a very large French Protestant church established. The people in Switzerland that were not happy about all the wars did come down into France, and those Swiss-trained Protestant chaplains and, and priests formed this uh, 
French Protestant Church, which later we know we call them the Huguenots. But those folks were not well received in France. Charles V was still, his lineage was still Catholic. He had not thrown off completely that uh, preference, perhaps, in how he treated things. And you had uh, a marriage, ultimately, of one of his great uh, grandsons to a Spanish uh, person that uh, if we if we came down to 1572 was St. Bartholomew's Day. The Queen Mother was not happy with uh, how things were going with some of the local military leaders, one of which was a, vi- a very highly esteemed admiral who was a Protestant. She basically put forward the idea of assassinating him on this day. And it was not well done. He survives. People were looking around, pointing fingers. Unfortunately, the young groom stood up and said he wished they were all, all these Protestants were just, if someone would just shoot all these Protestants, it would be better. And in that moment, that, that was taken as a go for it moment. And over 3,000 Protestants in Paris were killed that day. And ultimately, numbers, depending upon the length of time you expanded, if it's, be, if it's like within three days, maybe as many as 10,000 Protestants died in France. If it goes beyond that, the numbers reach closer to 30,000. And so there was a very large uh, moment of, we're not welcome here. And so that type of persecution ultimately is what led the migration again to the United States where we have people seeking a place to live that isn't hostile and so um, that was to me a very uh, horrific story to think but you, you literally again see you're seeing people that are that are labeled as one thing I'm let's say a Catholic monarch but their actions don't belie any form of, of Christianity. Their, their actions are just that of a debased human. And so um, I think that's the, the key to all of this is to remember that even though we see this Christendom largely burgeon <coughs> from the Roman Empire, a lot of it collapses with the invasion of the Muslims, and then a lot of it burgeons again with the ex- explosion of Protestantism, Unless the Lord is actually active in the body, it's just a, it's just a, a convenience. So, so um, at this particular time, over across the pond, or we'll call it the pond. It's not the pond. It's really that river. You have in England a large amount of upheaval. Things are going and coming, and we have the uh, establishment of the of the English Church, separating from the Catholic Church. The 39 Articles of Religion are issued in 1563, and that was one of the very first really good articulations, again, of how we, if you weren't going to do it like we were doing it, how would you do it? And they, uh, they did a, a nice job with that. Um, we'll talk, next week when we talk about the Great Awakening, I, w- I would think we'll spend more time on England, because... A lot of it is kind of muddied in the timelines. A lot of the things that were happening here I wanted to touch on because I felt like they really um, show the 
why people would leave. Why wouldn't you stay in the Netherlands? The Netherlands seems nice. And, and so you had to have the understanding that the political scene there was so volatile that they were forced to consider that migration. And at the same time, we also really see the, uh, the growth of the, the other side of our, our story was the Eastern Orthodox Church. Where, what was going on there? Well, if you recall our discussions last week, we, we talked about how um, there had been a collapse of the, Byzant- or the, yeah, the Byzantine Empire, that the Turks had taken it over. Well, at that particular time, when everyone, everyone reunited with Rome, it was a lone man out, and it was the people in Kiev. They were like, nope, we're not going to do that. We're, we're thinking that's not the right way to go. It's uh, basically at this particular time, at 1589, that Moscow has become a patriarch. And so at that point in time, it's joined back in with the four Eastern Orthodox patriarchies of Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, and... uh, I think that, well, I'm missing one. It, it probably was still Constantinople, but it's under Turkish rule at that time. But in any case, Moscow becomes this new, uh, this new head of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and although at that time they're the, most, the least of the five, they would ultimately uh, elevate themselves to the point that we today have a, a very prolific Moscow-oriented patriarchy that, in fact, through Alaska, created the uh, the uh, the Orthodox Church in America. So they they came the other route rather than coming from the East Coast. They came from the West Coast, and we have um, have that. So. Well, the Russian Orthodox is what they would call themselves, but they are of the Eastern Orthodox faith. They basically hold that there are equal uh, patriarchs. So if you remember back in the earliest times, we had the five patriarchs that Rome was one of. They now, in theory, believe they replace Rome as the fifth. And so, uh, but the American Orthodox Church basically calls themselves autocephalous, meaning that we've appointed our own head, which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. The, the, they they want to separate themselves from the Russian Orthodox Church they came out of, and they're hoping that that would be. But if you look at the numbers today, the Eastern Orthodox Church is growing in popularity in the United States because of the smells and bells that so many people are like, I'm looking for something true and you know, it's real, and and so for a lot of people, that's that's what they're drawn to. So, and I would it'd be interesting to talk to like Joe or some he's he's already out and about, but about how that has influenced our own our own Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But the robes that you would see some groups wearing, the Genevan uh, gowns, those types of things are are a thing, and other. Uh, the PCA and, and other, uh, the PCUSA especially, are a thing, whereas for us it's typically just a suit and tie. Well, we but, still have uh, the Geneva gown uh-huh. in the OPC. 
In the PCA, yeah, it is a personal choice. Right. And as, as we'll see, it, um, I, I, I drew him out. I was waiting to see if he'd say it. But uh, I, think, I think for a large part, people are uh, comforted by something slightly different than what that they grew up with as being in the norm. And so I think that's a, a reason why people are... We had a movement, uh, and we'll get to that shortly, but you know, the, the last 30 years have been a large upheaval of what is really um, the thought process. We went from a, a business-oriented, every, every church should be run like a corporation, to a everyone should only have no shoes, and we should only sit in the grass. You know, there's just all kinds of differences that we've been going through. And so how we got there from this, that we're going to see, is that there was enough persecution that they needed to leave, and that's how we first started to have this large desire to, to move. And so, uh, we'll, uh, I guess... So was, can I ask a question? Were, sure. So was it either Eastern Orthodox, were they affected by the Muslim yes. caliphates? Yes. So originally, whenever the uh, Muslim caliphate came in and took over, they did not, uh, there was no destruction of the, of the Christian they actually had a fairly high respect for the Christian because of their belief that Jesus was a, a prophet. And so they were allowed to live by paying a tax without being attacked. Later on, we see the Crusades come where we're trying to retake the Holy Lands and essentially the, the animosity is, is, is created between the, the Muslim faith and there are some of their uh, their clerics that essentially change some of the, the writings, so to speak, to say no, the the Christian is now truly an infidel and in, in, in is part of the normal non. But early on, they were allowed to keep their regular gatherings and everything in Turkey, just like they had before. And for a large part, the the uh, they signed a deal with Rome to get the the, the forces of Europe to come and defend them but by the second crusade they were already realizing that it was not, it was not as beneficial since there was no differentiation between a Coptic Christian or a regular Christian of the area and the, the Muslim the crusaders just kind of said we're here, let's take that and, uh, and so they actually started asking the Turks to, well you know we hear they're going to be coming over there and help the Turks attack and largely ruin some of the, uh, the Crusades' efforts. And so my comments of how they did it were completely uh, my own there. But I mean, the, the history does reflect the fact that there seems to be collaboration between the, the, the two. And so um, I just think that it's very, it's very telling though that again, anytime a religion is changed, for political motivations rather than individual motivations it is doomed to fail and so uh, that seems to be what I took from all that any other thoughts alright Father we thank you for this opportunity to discuss you Lord we ask you to give us a greater love for yourself and we ask you Lord to also help us to worship you appropriately in this coming hour 
We pray for those that are not here today, that those are, that are sick. We just ask you, Lord, for your mercies on them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.